So this is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and uh, not to put on two tunics. For he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And he healed them. Now this is verse 14. King Herod heard of it. This is the name of Jesus. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the other prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, was, uh, when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased her, Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, "'Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you.' And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And so she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, because, but because of his oaths, and the guests that he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner, executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to his mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid him in the tomb. The apostles returned. Remember, they had been sent out two by two to do so many things. This is verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And they said to him, said to them, or he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many people were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place all by themselves. Now many saw uh, they're going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot all uh, from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
And when it grew, grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and by, and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the, uh, the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set, to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. Oh, 12, sorry, full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after... He had taken leave of them. He went up to the mountain to pray. This is God's word. And so uh, right now, um, before the preaching of God's word, uh, we're going to release uh, Camp Redstone. But it was important uh, for us to have these kids in here for the missions moment and for the giving moment. And today, because it was so lengthy, to actually hear the story. And so in the back, you're actually going to see Mr. Scott Freeman and others back there. Wave, Mr. Scott. That's your teacher for the day. And Miss Rachel's coming. And so, yes, if you have a four-year-old all the way up to four, or fifth grade. And parents, if you are okay with them leaving the service, uh, we have a class for them in the back, and they're going to learn God's Word and be uh, mentored by Miss Brooke, and there's uh, Miss Kathy back there, and so they're going to take your kiddos, and they're going to keep them safe, they're going to have a lot of fun, and they're going to listen to the Bible and learn lots of things. At Redstone Church, it is really, really, really important to us that we invest in the next generation of folks. So you notice that it was Kyler, you know, she's in her 20s, for Kyler to step into the missions moment and to give the missions away. She is a part of the missions. We, we noticed a bunch of young faces on, on stage. So it's important for us, the guys who are starting to get more and more gray in their beard, you know, you know, we're starting to wither away and, you know, those kinds of things. And our days are growing nigh for the old guys in the room. Yeah, that's right. I turned 40 this year. You know, I'm half, I'm almost dead. You know, I'm halfway, halfway done. Uh, but it's important for us to t- continue to pass the baton, continue to invest in the next generation. And so it is with great pro- uh, pleasure, with great honor that I'm going to introduce Will Morris uh, to you guys. Will Morris, come on up. You know Will from standing behind a, a guitar and leading us in worship week in and week out. Today he'll be standing behind God's word and, and behind a lectern because he, we've asked him to come and to, and to um, preach God's word. All right, so Will, before you get started, you feeling all right? I reckon. I reckon. There he is. This is Will Morris, everyone. So before uh, we get started, Will, can I pray for you? Yes, sir. Jesus, thanks for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is truly, it, it, it enlightens our way because it enlightens, enlightens us and gives away Jesus. That's what we need this morning. Thanks for Will Morris. Thank you for his 
obedience to you. Thank you for his passion for your word. Thank you that he would give his very life for the sake of you and your gospel. As he opens up your word, I pray that you give him the authority that you gave the early apostles as they were sent out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Spencer. And thank you guys for um, being here and being um, wanting to hear from the Word of God. Um, I really, really love our church, and it's really a pleasure to be able to stand up here and um, lead you guys in worship every week. Um, and it's just even more of a pleasure for you guys to be a part of developing um, leaders like me spiritually. So I want to thank you for that. Um, we don't have a lot of time, and that was a lot of Scripture. So we're just going to dive in. Um, we are going to ask a question today, and this question is going to come up repeatedly, so it's, it's kind of the main idea. The question is, whose table do you want to sit at? Okay? Whose table do you want to sit at? So all the points that we're making here, it's going to come back to whose table do you want to sit at? Now, while we're on the subject of tables, I really um, want to bring up something that is actually really concerning to me um, that I've noticed in American culture and really in cultures around the world. Um, you see, I love hamburgers a lot. Um, hamburgers are delicious. And yeah, as, as you know, a hamburger should be eaten with a piece of bread on the top, a delicious juicy ground beef in the middle, preferably less than 80% lean, um, very delicious, and then a piece of bread on the bottom. So what I find so concerning, though, is that there's this new trend going on where people are eating burgers without any bread. And some of you in this uh, congregation here are guilty of this um, terrible offense, and you chalk it up to dieting or carbohydrates or something ridiculous like that. But I want you to know, burgers are meant to be eaten with bread on top and on bottom. And I want you to get out of this sermon that this is actually a biblical idea. Yes. Thank you, Spencer. This is a biblical idea. Um, in the book of Mark, I am actually kind of serious, but not exactly. Um, in the book of Mark, there is a literary technique. Now it's nerd time. There's a literary technique that Mark uses where he tells a story, and then in order to get a particular point across, he sandwiches another story into the middle of that story. So we saw this last week, actually, in Mark chapter 5. Um, we see in verse 21, it starts a story about Jairus and his sick daughter. And then Jesus, out of nowhere, uh, well, Mark, out of nowhere, just sandwiches this story in about this lady being healed for her faith. And then in verse 35, it shifts back to the story about Jairus and his daughter. And um, the, the kind of central phrase in that is, do not fear, only believe. So in order to teach this point about faith, Mark uses these two stories kind of sandwiched together. So that is why a burger should be eaten um, with bread on top and bottom. Um, but we see another one of these sandwiches today, and it's going to be extremely important to uh, how we understand the passage. Um, so we're going to start off with our first piece of bread here in uh, verses 7 through 13. We're only going to go through this really quickly, then we're going to go through all the rest and come back. This is a messy hamburger. I know it's one of those that drips all over you when you eat it, the good kind. So um, just to summarize 7 through 13, Jesus sends his apostles out on a mission, right? 
Um, he sends them with nothing but a staff and the clothes on their back. They can't take any bread. They can't take money. They can't take a bag with them. Ultimately, they are sent for one thing, and that is to proclaim a message similar to what Jesus has been proclaiming, of um, that people should repent. And they are empowered by his authority to do some really amazing things. And um, as we think about whose table do you want to sit at, the first principle that I want to just draw really quick and then move on from is that discipleship with Jesus means being sent, and it demands a response from the world. So that's kind of two principles, but I'm going to say it's one, okay? Discipleship with Jesus means being sent, and that demands a response from the world. So, um, church, I want you to know he is sending you also with a message. He is sending you also with authority. We have the message of the gospel, and we are called to take that message to the world. Um, Ultimately, we uh, move on into verse number 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So you notice that as the disciples go out on mission, the world has to take notice of that. And King Herod is confronted with a question that the whole book of Mark kind of revolves around. And that question is, who do you say that I am? We see that people all around Herod are saying, well, maybe it's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's this and that. Um, And Herod, in his uh, paranoia, thinks that it is John the Baptist who he had beheaded. So that's where we move on. Uh, Let's remember principle number one. Discipleship with Jesus means being sent, and it demands a response from the world. So in the middle of this narrative of Jesus sending his disciples out, Mark drops this other story in, seemingly out of nowhere. And that is the middle of our burger here, Um, our biblical burger, is when Herod hears about this. And um, that brings us to principle number two. Remember, we are asking the question, which table do you want to sit at? And in this passage, we are going to look at the table of the world, the table of Herod. Principle number two, the table of the world breeds pride, selfishness, and it can never satisfy. The table of the world breeds pride, selfishness, and it can never satisfy. So this is a really dark, gruesome story um, about the brokenness of our world, and it's it's really a, a heavy passage to read through. The main characters that you need to be aware of are Herod, John the Baptist, and then all the people who are around Herod at this banquet that he has thrown. So first, in this principle, we see Herod is full of pride. Herod is full of pride. Um, The table of the world really breeds this kind of pride. What you see is um, Herod... In this time of Israel, um, they were under Roman rule, so the emperor of Rome was ultimately in charge. But he allowed these kind of regional rulers around to, um, to take care of certain regions, and that's what Herod was. But Herod props himself up as a king. Um, he's, he's called a king here, but ultimately he doesn't have the authority that an actual king would have. But he throws himself this birthday party, and around his table there's nobles, there's military commanders, there's leading men of Galilee. Ultimately, he is, he is throwing this party for himself, right? 
he, he is trying to build up his own name. And at this party, there is probably the best food, the best music, the best entertainment, the best everything is going on, on here. And he is just showing off for himself. He is, he is building himself up. And if you want to be someone in this region, you want to be at this party, right? This, these are the people in charge. These are the successful people. Um, and they are all coming together to try and build themselves up and build Herod up. Um, he also, as you move on further in the story, he pridefully offers something that he actually doesn't have the authority to give. He offers this girl up to half of the kingdom. Remember, he's just a regional under ruler. He's subordinate to the emperor. He can't even offer that, but he's trying to show off, right? He's just trying to um, build himself up in pride. So Herod is full of pride too. Herod is full of selfishness. We see that Herod comes from a really messed up family. I'll spare you of the details, but really quick, his dad had 10 wives. This Herod was born from the fourth wife, and he had a half-brother named Philip who was born from the third wife, and Philip was married to Herodias, who was their half-niece through the second wife. But then Herod got rid of his own wife and convinced Herodias, his half-niece, half-sister-in-law, to leave his half-brother Philip and marry him instead. So it's, it's just a really, really messed up kind of um, mess of a family, right? But ultimately what we see in this family is that people are trying to um, find some sort of satisfaction um, in their relationships. And Herod is showing great selfishness in his relationships. He shows selfishness in his fear in this story. Uh, we see in verse 20 that he, he wasn't killing John because he was afraid of John. We see in other gospel accounts he wasn't killing John partly because of his fear of the people, what they thought of John. He thought they would revolt. Um, so in his fear, he is being controlled by other people as a, as a type of self-preservation. And then in verse 26, he shows selfishness by guarding his own reputation um, with the cost of John's life. So if you look in verse 26, it says, The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. So ultimately, he just cared so much about what other people thought about him that he was willing to kill a good man. So Herod is full of selfishness. And third, Herod can't offer a meal that satisfies um, everyone involved, like I said, is seeking satisfaction in some way. Um, but at the end of this story, all you see is um, bringing out on a platter John the Baptist's head as if it was the main course of a meal. Um, guys, I want you to know that the main course of the table of the world is death. The main course of the table, the best thing that the world has to offer us is death. And this is just a gruesome, um, gruesome passage that teaches us the table of the world brings pride, selfishness, and it can never satisfy. Thankfully, there's another table, right? So we see, see this really awful picture of the table of the world, um, but this, this whole message is around which table will you choose, so there's another table that we can look at, and that is what brings us to our second piece of bread. Remember our burger, we've got the first piece of bread, then we have the burger, and then there's a second piece of bread. So if you look in verse 30, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. So 
we're still in that story, right? We're still, Jesus sent his disciples. We're still in the middle of that. And they come back. And Jesus says, let's go away. Let's rest. He, they, they all pack up in a boat. They're trying to get away because the Bible tells us they didn't even have any time to eat. So um, they, are, they, they cross this lake. And whenever they get to the other side of the lake, they are met by thousands and thousands of people, right? Because the people saw that they had left and they were like, oh, I want to keep on uh, hearing Jesus talk and um, getting healed by Jesus. So when they get over there, um, there are thousands and thousands of people, which brings us to our um, third principle about Jesus. The table of the compassionate King Jesus is able to satisfy and satisfy abundantly. So what we see in this famous passage about feeding the 5,000 is the character of Jesus and the table of Jesus held up against the character of Herod and the table of Herod. We recognize that Jesus is the good king as opposed to Herod um, being the bad king. Now, um, I say the compassionate King Jesus is able to satisfy and satisfy abundantly. So first we see that he's compassionate. Where Herod was selfish and prideful, our Jesus, King Jesus, is compassionate. Now, there's a uh, saying um, on Snickers bars, right? It says that Snickers satisfies. And um, their whole ad campaign right now is this idea that you're not you when you're hungry. Have you seen those ads? Um, they, people turn into monsters whenever they're hungry. And I actually know this to be true. Um, just a quick story about one of your pastors um, that I'm going to enjoy telling. Um, one of the first staff meetings that I actually went to um, whenever I got hired on at Redstone, um, Daniel McIntosh walks in with a bag, and it had a burger and fries in it. And um, he set it down. He apparently had had a really long day, hadn't gotten the chance to, to eat, so he sets it down, and he runs out of the room to use the bathroom before he comes back to eat his burger. Then another one of your pastors, this was Jerry Williams, walks in, he sees the burger and his natural instinct as an elder of a church was to steal the burger and to hide it in my jacket pocket. Um, I don't know what went through Jerry's mind, but that's what happened. What happened whenever Daniel came back, however, and looked in his bag was terrifying. Um, it was really scary. Daniel looked in and calmly, calmly looked up and said, if you don't give me my burger back, I am going to climb your frame like a monkey and gouge your eyes out. <laughs> I was shocked. I was terrified. Remember, this is like one of the first staff meetings I've been to um, at this church. And it was my jacket pocket that Jerry had hid it in. So the point is, you're not you when you're hungry, right? You are not you when you're hungry. But somehow, Jesus is, right? So they are hungry. They are exhausted. They haven't had the time to eat. They are trying to find a place to eat by themselves. They get over there, and there are thousands of people waiting for them. And look at what we read in verse 34. It says, When he went ashore and he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
and he began to teach them many things. So he was exhausted, he was hungry, but he had compassion on these people. And he didn't just like hang out with them, he taught them. That's exhausting, it's difficult to do. So um, he truly is a compassionate king. Where Herod partied for himself, um, Jesus seeks the good for those around him, even whenever it is not convenient for him. So Jesus is compassionate. Second, we see that where Herod's banquet ends with death, Jesus provides satisfaction. So the disciples are not themselves when they're hungry, and they're trying to send the crowd away. They're trying to get everyone away to eat their own food. Um, but Jesus has a different plan, and we all know the story. He miraculously uh, turns five loaves of bread and two fish into food for thousands and thousands. But the m- most exciting verse to me in this passage is in verse 42, and it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. So not only did Jesus provide a little bit of food for them, but Jesus provides satisfaction for them. Jesus is the one who can satisfy. So as we compare these two tables, we have the table of Herod that doesn't satisfy. We have the table of Jesus that does satisfy. Guys, um, I don't know about you, but in my life, there is the world is constantly trying to throw something at me saying that it will satisfy, constantly. Um, whether it be like wanting to not have to work two jobs to provide for my family or wanting to have like everything in my house fixed, just all the little things that are going on. If I could just have a perfect house, that would be great. Or uh, saw yesterday the lottery's at like $1.6 billion and I was like, hey, Abby. Thankfully, Abby says, no, I'm not going to do that. So that's good. But just looking at that and thinking, oh, if I had $1.6 billion, that would probably satisfy me, right? But guys, it's fool's gold. Ultimately, nothing will satisfy you. The table of the world only brings death. Jesus is the only fountain we can drink from and never thirst again. And then third, Jesus' banquet provides a table of abundance. So not only did he um, feed them and satisfy them, but he provided abundantly. There were leftovers. The more that they needed, the more that he provided. And that's just how our King Jesus is. So the table of the compassionate King Jesus is able to satisfy and satisfy abundantly. So if we go back to the question that I started with of whose table do you want to sit at, the answer should be really, really easy, right? We said there's the table of the world. That's pride, selfishness. It doesn't satisfy And then we got the table of Jesus over here that is compassion, satisfaction, abundant provision. That's a pretty easy choice, right? Obviously, I want to pick the table of Jesus. Here's the problem and where I really want to focus on this morning. We usually pick the table of Herod. More often than not, we hold up what the world has to offer, and then we hold up what Jesus has to offer, and we say, I'll take the world. Or we we see what's on Herod's table, and we see what's on Jesus' table, and we say, I think that will taste just fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go with Herod's. Why? Guys, why do we do that? That just seems ridiculous that we would pick Herod over Jesus. The decision is obvious. Well, the next two principles that I have, I think, will help us understand why. Principle number four, 
Jesus is a very different sort of king than what the world is looking for. Jesus is a very different sort of king than what the world is looking for. If you look in John's version of this story in uh, John chapter 6, at the end of it, everyone has eaten and they're satisfied. And then John tells us the crowd went nuts. The crowd, he says, they were trying to take him by force and make him king. Okay? So that gives you a little perspective of what's happening here. The crowd thought that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a conquering king who would come in and take over and overthrow Roman rule and establish the kingdom of Israel forever again. That's their idea of what a Messiah was. And they said, hey, that, that might be Jesus. He just fed all of us with five loaves and two fish. This might be the Messiah here. So they try to make him king. But ultimately what they are doing is they are trying to make Jesus look a lot more like Herod than the suffering servant that he actually came to be. They were setting their minds on earthly victory. They were setting their minds on the things of man and not on the things of God. And Jesus' response, I think, is really, really interesting. In verses 45 and 46, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus says, no, that's not why I came. He gets his disciples out of there so that they don't get caught up in some kind of revolution. He gets the crowds away, and then he goes by himself and he prays. What is Jesus doing? He is resetting his mind on the things of God, remember? He is not like Herod. Jesus is not selfish, prideful here. He is resetting his mind and saying, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's why I came. So he is rejecting this kind of revolution and saying, I am here for a different reason. He's setting his mind on the things of God. Jesus was not the king that the world was looking for, but Jesus was the king that the world needed. If we look in Mark chapter 8 and we fast forward to this moment between Jesus that we've talked about multiple times in this series, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Peter gets it right, right? And Jesus says, that's good, good job, right answer. But then Jesus goes on to tell him what that means. He starts talking about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die, and the disciples don't get it. The disciples push back. Peter actually rebukes Jesus and says, no, like you're the conquering king, Remember, you're the Messiah, that's, that's what you're supposed to be. And that's where Jesus makes a really important point about discipleship that I think helps us understand why we pick Herod's table instead of Jesus. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Guys, this is where that literary technique that I was talking about comes in really important, this, this sandwich technique that he was doing. This passage as a whole, altogether, 
is teaching us something about discipleship, about what it means to follow this sort of king, not the king like Herod, but what it means to actually follow a king like Jesus. That takes me to principle number five, our last one. It says, to follow this sort of king is to follow him not only in his abundance, but also in his suffering. To follow this sort of compassionate king means to follow him not only in his abundance, but also in his suffering. So remember, if we go back to the beginning of this passage, Jesus sends his disciples out, right? He sends them out, and they're doing amazing things. And then all of a sudden, Mark just sandwiches this story in about John the Baptist being brutally murdered. What's he trying to say here? Why in the world would he stick that right in the middle of this story about being sent? This is not just a passage about abundant provision. It is that. There's definitely that in it, and we want to rejoice in that. But this is a passage about the cost of discipleship. Mark, as he wrote to his readers, talked about how discipleship is being sent And then he said, that calls to mind the murder of John the Baptist. That calls to mind the death that happened to this great man, John the Baptist. We see in the death of John the Baptist a really interesting um, foreshadowing of the death of Jesus. If you look, he's, he's killed by a, um, a ruler who was afraid of the people. Um, he, there's just all kinds, of, um, all kinds of similarities. But it also foreshadows the death of the apostles. It, 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 it foreshadows those who Jesus had sent out and how they would die. Those disciples, they would be commissioned by Jesus. They would be captured and held by corrupt political leaders. And ultimately, every one of those disciples, except for one, would be murdered by corrupt leaders who were more afraid of losing their power than anything. And the one guy who wasn't murdered in that way, he ended up being exiled on an island for the last years of his life. Guys, when Jesus calls people to follow him, He calls them to be sent and to die with him. That is a really heavy, difficult message. I know that. But what he is saying here is that you will be sent, and that brings to mind the death of John the Baptist. People like the crowds there, they think they can make the table of Jesus look more like the table of Herod. They think that they can use Jesus and and find some sort of success in this world through him. But for those people, he tells them to leave, right? He, He sends them away. Jesus sends them away because you can only sit at the table with Jesus if you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and follow him. Peter is crucified. Andrew is crucified. Every other disciple is killed, except for John, who is exiled. That is the cost of discipleship that Mark is communicating in this passage. So now, let me ask you this question again. Whose table do you want to choose?
it got a little more complicated now, right? We have this table of the world that actually has some alluring things to offer, right? The people who were there at the Hable, at the Hable, that doesn't make sense, at the table with Herod were nobles, they were military commanders, they were leading men of Galilee, right? They got to be with the in crowd, they were popular, they were successful, they were probably the people with the nicest houses, the biggest bank accounts, the most popularity. That's some pretty alluring stuff. But guys, there's a reason that Jesus' following dwindled and dwindled and dwindled throughout his ministry. People started to realize that is not what Jesus has to offer. Following Jesus does not offer worldly success. It is not profitable in worldly terms. The cost of discipleship is great. In Matthew 8, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 14, 27 says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. John 15 says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And 2 Timothy 3 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Guys, to follow in the footsteps of a compassionate King Jesus is not only to follow him in his abundance, but it's also to follow him in his suffering. But I want to urge you to count the cost and realize that Jesus is worth it. That no matter how great that cost is, Jesus is worth that cost. Everything the world has to offer ends in death. There's no satisfaction in it. Remember, the main course of the table of the world is death. Matthew 7, Jesus says, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those that find it are few. But Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Guys, why is it so worth it? It's because Jesus is a compassionate king. At the table of Jesus, he offers ultimate satisfaction. What we seek in the world cannot offer us that. Jesus offers us satisfaction. His way is narrow. But his life is abundant. And in the end, one day, Jesus would be seated on the throne. Whenever governments have fallen, whenever all of the riches of this world are burned up, when everything is over, Jesus will be seated in glory. And he will be surrounded at his table by martyrs, by those who were persecuted, by the poor, by those who had nothing at all in this life. He will be surrounded by those people, not by those who were the most successful, 
not by those who had the, uh, the, the, the greatest reputation on earth. He will be surrounded by the least. And those people will sit around his table and they will eat and they will be satisfied. Guys, they get to spend eternity with a compassionate king. Totally satisfied in him. That is a glorious truth. And that is why it is worth the cost of discipleship. There is uh, two banquets that we see in this passage. Um, But there's a third banquet that we uh, see in the gospel accounts that we actually go to every, every week here at Redstone. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread again, Just like he did on the hill that he fed the 5,000, he took this bread, and this time it's just with those that had continued to follow him. And he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Guys, Jesus' body was broken for us so that eternally, we could have satisfaction in Him so that eternally we could eat and be satisfied. And then He took wine, like the wine that Herod was probably drunk on, and all of his subjects um, at their party, they were probably just drinking, drinking it in. And Jesus takes it and He says, this is my blood. This is my blood that is poured out for you. And then what Jesus said after that is really, really exciting. He tells his disciples, I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it in a kingdom. Guys, that's what we have to look forward to. If we count the cost and we realize the cost of discipleship is worth it, ultimately there will be a day that we can sit and we can drink in the new covenant with Jesus eternally. And we can recognize that Jesus is totally worth that. Because Jesus is the one who satisfies. Jesus is the compassionate King. If you're... uh, new here to Redstone. We do this every single week and it may look a little different than what you've experienced. There's going to be little pockets of people um, all around taking communion together. And if you're a believer, we would invite you to join one of those pockets or to to take it with your family. Um, If you don't know Jesus, I want you to know Jesus gave himself for you. Jesus did not come to get some kind of temporary earthly power. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is why I think you're here today listening to this message. And if you don't know what to do with that message, if you have no idea how to move on that, um, the Bible says that those who believe in Jesus will be saved. If you want to talk through that with someone, if you want someone to pray with you, Jerry, and Carly are back there um, in the back corner, and we would invite you to go pray with them. 
but for everyone here, whether you know Jesus or not, we are faced with a question here at the end of this passage, this idea, whose table do you want to eat from? Is it this table of Jesus where he gives himself sacrificially, or is it the table of the world? Let's pray. Lord, you are the compassionate king. You are a glorious king who is worthy of worship and praise, and yet you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross for the sake of the weak and the poor, for the sake of those who know that they have nothing. Lord, we, um, we cannot, um, cannot possibly understand how great of a sacrifice that was. But Lord, we recognize that you invite us to be satisfied in you. You invite us um, to know you and to love you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn from the allure of the world turn from the table that continually calls us and turn to you knowing that you are better, that you satisfy. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You all can uh, go ahead and stand. There are um, men on every corner of the, um, of the gym and you can take communion together.